English 11. What's up, guys? Um, it's about, let's see, putting my glasses on. 8.22 on Wednesday, April 29th. It's bizarre to me. Like the months feel like years. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it. Um, I got an email today that I'm supposed to be getting a package on May 1st. May 1st feels a million miles away. Does anyone else feel the same way? Time is really weird around here. Um, I hope you guys are okay. I'm going to, oh, I got the wrong book out. I'm going to talk to you guys about the second half of chapter three. And I hope your reading is going okay. Um, hopefully you saw my global feedback in Google, Google Classroom from chapter two. Um, and then for questions for this week, I'm just having you keep an eye on some things as you read. Um, and I'm going to highlight some important things that I want you to know. So when we left off, um, we had this really key moment where Jordan Baker, who, who, to be clear, does not know Jay Gatsby. Okay. She's never met him before, but then we get this weird thing where Gatsby's butler approaches her and says, um, Miss Baker, Mr. Gatsby would like to speak with you alone. And she gets, you know, taken away. Now I know everyone's thinking like, Oh, Jay Gatsby has a crush on Jordan Baker. Please, please. It is not that simple y'all. Okay. Um, I want to dispel that myth right now. I know that's what we think, but it's just, it's just like, that's not what's happening. Okay. So Nick is then by himself and he's walking around the party and she's off with what's his name? Jay Gatsby. And the, the second half of this chapter, we have some amazing, descriptions of drunk people. I don't know how else to say it. I was going to try to like censor myself. You know, you're teenagers. I shouldn't be talking about these funny scenes with drunk people, but that is actually what is happening here in the last part. And I want to read some of this to you because the prose is so spot on um, with how he describes the people leaving the party that I think it deserves to be highlighted. Okay. So let's start at the bottom of page um, or the middle of page 56. It said, I looked around. Most of the, most of the remaining women were now having fights with men said to be their husbands. Even Jordan's party, the quartet from East egg were rent asunder by dissension. One of the men was talking with curious intensity to an young actress and his wife, after attempting to laugh at the situation in a dignified and indifferent way, broke down entirely and resorted to flank attacks. At intervals, she appeared suddenly at his side like an angry diamond and hissed, you promised in his ear. The reluctance to go home was not confined to wayward men. The hall was at present occupied by two deplorably sober men and their highly indignant wives. The wives were symp sympathizing with each other in slightly raised voices. Whenever he says I'm having a good time, he wants to go home. Never heard anything so selfish in my life. We're always the first ones to leave. So are we. Well, we're almost the last tonight, said one of the men sheepishly. The orchestra left half an hour ago. 
In spite of the wives' agreement that such malevolence was beyond credibility, the dispute ended in a short struggle, and both wives were lifted kicking into the night air. As I waited for my hat in the hall, the door of the library opened, and Jordan Baker and Gatsby came out together. Ooh, here we go, guys. He was saying some last words to her, but the eagerness in his manner tightened abruptly into a formality as several people approached him to say goodbye. Jordan's party were calling her impatiently, were calling impatiently to her from the porch, and she lingered for a moment to shake hands. I've just heard the most amazing thing, she whispered. How long were we in there? Why, about an hour. It was simply amazing, she repeated abstractly. Remember, this is Jordan talking about her conversation with Gatsby. But I swore I wouldn't tell it here, and I am tantalizing you. Remember, she's talking to Nick. She yawned gracefully in my face. Please come please come and see me. Phone book under the name of Mrs. Sigourney Howard, my aunt. She was hurrying off as she talked. Her brown hand waved a jaunty salute as she melted into her party at the door. Um, okay, so so first of all, the information that she just got from Gatsby somehow involves Nick which is even more strange. So she's saying, look, I just heard the craziest thing. I have to tell you about it, but I can't tell you here. I got to tell you later. So, so if you were wondering why Gatsby wanted to talk to Jordan, you're not going to find out because why would the author tell you that right now? You've got to keep reading. Okay, let's go back. So then Nick says, rather ashamed that on my first appearance, I had stayed so late. I joined the last of Gatsby's guests who were clustered around him. I wanted to explain that I'd hunted for him in the evening and to apologize for not having known him in the garden. Don't mention it, he enjoined me eagerly. Don't give it another thought, old sport. The familiar expression held no more fraternity than the hand which reassuringly brushed my shoulder. And don't forget, we're going up in the hydroplane tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock. Then the butler behind his shoulder. Philadelphia wants you on the phone, sir. Member Chicago called earlier. All right, in a minute. Tell them I'll be right there. Good night. Good night. He smiled. Oh, here we go again with a smile. And suddenly there seemed to be a pleasant significance in having been among the last to go, as if he desired it so all the time. Good night, old sport. Good night. Okay, this next part that we're going to read, I find to be very funny. And I'm going to read it. And if even if we were in class, I would read it to you out loud. Because oh, And I'm really bummed that I can't see you guys because... Um, I'm really bummed I can't see you guys because... I would act it out and I would like use, you know, actions. And okay, you'll see. So here we go. But as I walked down the steps, remember he's descending the house, okay, into like the driveway area, but it's like a huge driveway, circle driveway area. But as I walked down the steps, I saw that the evening was not quite over. 50 feet from the door, a dozen headlights illuminated a bizarre and tumultuous scene. In the ditch beside the road, right side up but violently shorn of one wheel, rested a new coupe which had left Gatsby's drive not two minutes before. The sharp jut of a wall accounted for the detachment of the wheel, which was now getting considerable attention from half a dozen curious sh chauffeurs. However, as they had left their cars blocking the road, a harsh discordant din from those in the rear had been audible for some time and added to the already violent confusion of the scene. So guys, you got a picture. There's a wheel, there's a car and it's blocking everybody from leaving and the wheel has fallen off. Okay. 
A man in a long duster had dismounted from the wreck and now stood in the middle of the road looking from the car to the tire and from the tire to the observers in a pleasant, puzzled way. See, he explained, it went in the ditch. The fact was infinitely astonishing to him, and I recognized first the unusual quality of wonder and then the man, and then the man. It was the late patron of Gatsby's library. Okay, so remember... Monday's episode, we talked about this character who we are going to mutually refer to as Old Owl Eyes. He was in the library and he's really impressed that Gatsby has real books in his library. And now here he is outside among the people at the car wreck. How did it happen? He shrugged his shoulders. I know nothing whatever about mechanics, he said decisively. Remember, he's been drinking for like seven days, he told us. But how did it happen? Did you run into the wall? Don't ask me said Owl Eyes, washing his hands of the whole matter. I know very little about driving. Next to nothing. It happened, and that's all I know. Well, if you're a poor driver, you ought not to try driving at night. But I wasn't even trying, he explained indignantly. I wasn't even trying. An odd hush fell upon the bystanders. Do you want to commit suicide? You're lucky it was just a wheel, a bad driver, and not even trying. You don't understand, explained the criminal. I wasn't driving. There's another man in the car. The shock that followed this declaration found voice in a sustained, ah, as the door of the coupe swung slowly open. The crowd, it was now a crowd, stepped back involuntarily, and when the door opened, and when the door had opened wide, there was a ghostly pause. Then, that very gradually, part by part, a pale, dingling, individual, individual stepped out of the wreck, pawing tentatively at the ground with a large, uncertain dancing shoe. And this is the part that I always like. Like, okay, I want to read that sentence again. The door opens and all they see come out of the door is one leg. I'm going to say the sentence again. Then very gradually, part by part, a pale dangling individual stepped out of the wreck, pawing tentatively at the ground with a large, uncertain dancing shoe. Blinded by the glare of the headlights and confused by the incessant groaning of the horns, the apparition stood swaying for a moment before he perceived the man in the duster. So this guy's clearly drunk, okay? What's the matter? He inquired calmly. Did we run out of gas? Look! Half a dozen fingers pointed at the amputated wheel. He stared at it for a moment and then looked upward as though he suspected that it had dropped from the sky. It came off, someone explained. He nodded. At first, I didn't know. We, I didn't notice we stopped. A pause. Then, taking a long breath and straightening his shoulders, he remarked in a determined voice, "Wonder if tell me where there's a gasoline station." At least a dozen men, some of them a little better off than he was, explained to him that the wheel and the car were no longer joined by any physical bond. "Back out," he suggested after a moment. "Put her in reverse." But the wheel's off, he hesitated. No harm in trying, he said. The caterwauling horns had reached a crescendo, and I turned away and cut across the lawn toward home. I glanced back over once. A wafer of a moon was shining over Gatsby's house, making the night fine, as before, and surviving the laughter and the sound of his still-glowing garden. A sudden emptiness seemed to flow now from the windows and the great outdoor, the great doors, endowing with complete isolation the figure of the host who stood on the porch. 
his hand up in a formal gesture of farewell. Okay, I got to pause here. So a couple things. <clears throat> Driving drunk is not funny. I want to make that clear, right? The, what is entertaining to me is how the characters are written. Like the guy pawing his way out of the car and him explaining that, he, or us realizing he doesn't even know that the wheel has fallen off. On a thematic level, one thing that we realize in this passage is that cars are a big deal in this book. And I want to be clear about that. Are they a symbol? I don't know, but they're a big deal. You know, we got the Rolls Royce. Um, we're going to see Tom's car. Cars are a big deal. And in, in the, in the summer of 1922, as we're going to learn in one of our videos that we'll watch later, cars were modern. Like if you were cutting edge and had a ton of money, like you drove a car and in America, cars are still very much a, a status, a symbol of your status. Everybody kind of knows that. And in 1922, that was still the rule. The Rolls Royce is a status symbol. It was a hundred years ago and it is today. So the fact that we get this scene right here, it shows us that cars are actually capable of something more than a status symbol. Cars can get into accidents. They can destroy. If you put an irresponsible person in a car, something bad is going to happen. And that's all I'm going to say about that. But, I, but what I'm trying to explain to you is we got we to gotta pay attention to the things that are going to come up again and again in the novel. And I'm telling you right now that cars are going to come up again and again. When you guys watch these videos that I post to Classroom, it's called uh, The Great Gatsby Revealed. You get these behind-the-scenes looks at how the movie was made. And Boz Lerman, the director, has a whole segment that we'll watch later about cars and how it was super important for him to get the cars to look right, sound right, the whole deal. Because after reading the book, he too understood that cars were a really big deal in this book. This book is about wealthy people flaunting their status and taking advantage of everybody else based on how much money they have. And if we're talking about status, wealth, and America, you know we're talking about cars. So um, that's where the action of chapter three ends. Um, and then the last part from page 62, um, 64, we kind of get him saying like, you know, oh, it's not, he's, I'll just read the first sentence reading over what I have written so far. I see I've given the impression that the events of three nights, several weeks apart were all that absorbed me. On the contrary, they were merely casual events in a crowded summer. And until much later, they absorbed me infinitely less than my personal affairs. So he talks about, um, you know, where he went to dinner and then he talks about his work a little bit. Um, and then he says on the next page for a while, I lost sight of Jordan Baker. And then in midsummer, I found her again. He thought she was really cool because she was a golf champion. Um, and then we get this really interesting insight about her that I want to, I want to read to you guys at the end of the chapter, Jordan Baker, although I don't know how to say this. She is a main character. I was say maybe she's not as important as the other ones, but she's definitely a main character. Okay. Um, all right. So Nick says, um, he says, I wasn't actually in love, but I felt a sort of tender curiosity. The bored, haughty face that she turned to the world concealed something. Most affections conceal something eventually, even though they don't in the beginning. And one day I found out what it was. 
When we were on a house party together up in Warwick, she left a borrowed car in the rain with the top down and then lied about it. And suddenly I remembered the story about her that had eluded me that night at Daisy's. At her first big golf tournament, there was a row that nearly reached the newspapers, a suggestion that she had moved her ball from a bad lie in the semifinal round, meaning she had cheated in golf. The thing approached the proportions of scandal and then died away. A caddy retracted his statement, and the only other witness admitted that he might have been mistaken. The incident and the name had remained together in my mind. Jordan Baker instinctively avoided clever, shrewd men, and now I saw this was because she felt safer on a plane where any divergence from a code would be thought impossible. She was incurably dishonest. She wasn't able to endure being at a disadvantage, and given this unwillingness, I suppose she had begun dealing in subterfuges when she was very young in order to keep that cool, insolent smile turned to the world and yet satisfy the demands of her hard, jaunty body. I think that's the second time he's described her as jaunty. Um, It made no difference to me. Dishonesty in a woman is a thing you never blame deeply. I was casually sorry, and then I forgot. Um, So the first important trait about Jordan is that she's a dishonest person, but that doesn't become super important to Nick, or at least it's not in the beginning. It perhaps will later. Okay. Um, Wait, I got to read this next part. It was at the same house party that we had a curious conversation about driving a car. Oh, look, everybody, a mention of another car. Is it a symbol? I don't care what you want to call it but they just appear in the book a lot. Okay. It started because she had passed so close to some workmen that our fender flicked a button on one man's coat. So they're driving and she comes so close to a workman that she flicks the button on his coat with her car. Okay. So then Nick says, you're a rotten driver. I protested. Either you ought to be more careful or you ought not to drive at all. I am careful. No, you're not. Well, other people are, she said lightly. What's that got to do with it? They'll keep out of my way, she insisted. It takes two to make an accident. Suppose you met somebody just as careless as yourself. I hope I never will, she answered. I hate careless people. That's why I like you. Her sun-strained eyes stared straight ahead, but she had deliberately shifted our relations, and for a moment, I thought I loved her. Okay, um, so a couple things. The, the word careless is going to come up again in this novel. And you want to kind of think about like who can afford to be careless and who cannot afford to be careless. And for Jordan, um, it seems that her wealth and status has sort of really helped her um, because maybe she did kind of cheat, but then she covered it up or figured out how to get people to, to lie about it. And then, you know, she almost like hits a guy with her car and she just sort of blows it off like, um, you know, whatever. So she seems to be a person who is careless. Now, at this point in the book, you know, it's still kind of young in the summer. Nick has a crush on her. She's really pretty. You know, all, it, it's fine. It's not a big deal. Later in the book, when the stakes get higher, um, this same trait of hers will come out. So I don't know. That's what I'm telling you about Jordan Baker. Okay, guys. So listen, that's the rest of chapter three. And then next week, we're going to start chapter four. Um, and we're going to continue to uh, move through this mystery of who Jay Gatsby is and what he wants with Jordan Baker and even Nick Carraway. So I hope you guys are enjoying the book. 
And um, make sure you check out my global feedback for chapter three. Okay, bye.